Chapter 36. The deal was, if Russell and Piper went to school for the rest of the week, Maniac would show them the shortcut to Mexico on Saturday. He figured if they all managed to survive till then, he'd come up with something. On Saturday, the boys had their paper bag packed, and Maniac had a new deal. To go to school for another week, and he'd treat them to another large pizza. Besides, he said, crossing his fingers, this was the volcan- was volcano season down in Mexico. The whole place was a sheet of red-hot lava. Better wait till it cools down. They bought it, and they bought the same deal the following week. But school was still agony for the boys. It had to be worth more than pizza a week. But what? The brothers thought and thought about it and soon began to realize that the answer was sleeping between them every night. Ever since the famous maniac McGee had showed up at their house, Russell and Piper McNabb had become famous in their own right. Other kids were always crowding around, pelting them with questions. What's he like? What's he say? What's he do? Did he really sit on Finsterwell's front steps? Did he, is he really that fast? Kids starting then giving them knots, sneaker laces, yo-yo strings, toys, and saying, ask Maniac to undo this, will ya? Really little kids referred to him as Mr. Maniac. The McNabs ate it up. In the streets, the playgrounds, the school, the attention, not the pizza, was the real reason they put up with school each day. They began to feel something they had never felt before. They began to feel important. What a wonderful thing, this importance. Waiting for them the moment they awoke in the morning, pumping them up like basketballs, giving them bounce. And they hadn't even had to steal it. They loved it. The more they had, the more they wanted. And so when Maniac tried to cut the next pizza for school deal, Russell answered, no. No? Echoed Maniac, who had been afraid it would come to this. No, said Russell. We want something else. Uh, Oh, said Maniac. What's that? They told him. If he wanted another week's worth of school out of them, he would have to enter Finsterwald's backyard and stay there for ten minutes, screeched Piper, who shuddered at the very thought. When Maniac casually answered, okay, it's a deal, Piper ran shrieking from the house. On the next Saturday morning, Russell, Piper, and Maniac set out for Finsterwald's house about seven blocks away. They took the alleys. Along the way, they were joined by other kids who were waiting, their eyes at once fearful and excited. By the time they got to Finsterwald's backyard, at least 15 kids huddled against the garage door on the far side of the alley. Maniac didn't hesitate. He walked straight up to the back gate, opened it, and went in. Not only that, he went all the way to the center of the yard, turned, folded his arms, smiled, and called, Who's keeping time? Russell, his throat too dry to speak, raised his hand. For 10 minutes, 15 kids, and possibly the universe, held their breath. The only sounds were inside their heads, the moaning and wailing of the ghosts of all of the poor slobs who had ever blundered into Finsterwald's property. To the utter amazement of all, when Russell finally croaked, Time, Maniac McGee was still there, alive, smiling, apparently unharmed. Even more amazing, he didn't come out. Instead, he said, Say, you guys, how about adding to the deal? If I do something else while I'm here, will you make it the next two weeks at school? What 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 a what are you gonna gonna do? Stammered Russell. Maniac thought for a minute, then announced brightly, "I'll knock on the front door." Five kids finsterwallied on the spot. Several others screamed, "No, don't!" Piper went into some sort of fit and began kicking the garage door. Russell zoned out. Maniac took all of this to signify a deal. He hopped the backyard fence and strolled around front. The others went back down the alley and around the long way. They stationed themselves not only across the street, but almost halfway up the block. And even then, they squeezed together in a bunch, as though, 
if they were allowed any space between them, Finsterwald might somehow pick them off one by one. They huddled, trembling, to bear witness to the last seconds of Maniac McGee's life. They saw him stand directly in front of the red brick, three-story house, the bile green window shades. They saw him climb the three cement steps to the white door, the portal of death. They saw him raise his hand, and though they were too far away to hear, they saw him knock upon the door, and fifteen hearts beat in time to that silent knocking. Then the door opened. Finsterwald's door opened. Not much, but enough to see so the witness could make out a thin strip of blackness. Would Maniac be sucked into that black hole, like so much lint into a vacuum cleaner? Would Finsterwald's long bony hand dart out quick as a lizard's tongue and snatch poor Maniac? Maniac appeared to be speaking to the dark crack. Was he pleading for his life? Would his last words be skewered like a marshmallow by Finsterwald's dagger-tipped cane? Apparently not. The door closed. Maniac bound down the steps and came jogging toward them, grinning. Three kids bolted. Sure, he was a ghost. The others stayed. They invented excuses to touch him, to see if he was still himself, still warm. But they weren't positively certain until later, when they watched him devour a pack of butterscotch butterscotch crimpets. Chapter 37 Thus began a series of heroic feats by Maniac McGee. At 20 paces, he hit a telephone pole with a stone 61 times in a row. When the once-a-week freight train hit Elm Street, he started running from Oriel Street dead end on one rail and beat the train to the park. No sweat. He took off his sneakers and socks and walked, nonchalant as you please, through the rat-infested dump at the foot of Rako Hill. The mysterious hole down by the creek, the one you would never reach into, even if you dropped your most valuable possession into it, he stuck his hand in, his arm in, all the way to the... elbow, kept it there for the longest 60 seconds on record, and pulled it out dirty, but still full of fingers. He climbed the fence at the American bison pen at the zoo. He had suggested this feat himself, everyone else scoffing, while the mother looked on, kissed the baby buffalo. Nobody knows why buffalo became bull in the jump rope song. History often gets things wrong. So it went through February and March of that year, a feat a week. To much of the town, hearing about these things, it was simply a case of the legend adding to itself, doing what legends do. To Russell and Piper McNabb, it was a case of boasting, boosting their importance even higher in the eyes of the other kids. Was it not at the brothers' direction that Maniac McGee performed these deeds? And who, after all, is more amazing, the lion or the tamer? As for Maniac, he understood early on that he was being used for the greater glory of Piper and Russell. He also understood that without him, they would not be going to school every day. For the McNabs, there was nothing free about public education. A tuition had to be paid. Every week, Maniac paid it. And besides, he loved to meet the challenges they cooked up for him. And then one day, they gave him the most perilous challenge of all. They dared him to go into the East End. Chapter 38. The witnesses, there were twice 15 this time, went with him as far as Hector Street. They halted at the curb. He crossed the street and went on alone. Piper megaphoned after him. Maniac, come back. We was just kidding. You don't have to. Maniac just waved and went on. He knew he should be feeling afraid of those EastEnders, these so-called black people, but he wasn't. It was himself he was afraid of, afraid of any trouble he might cause by being there. It was the day of the worms, the first almost warm after the rainy night day in April, when you bolt from your house to find yourself in a world of worms. They were as numerous here as in the East End as they had been in the West. 
the sidewalks, the streets, the very places where they didn't belong, forlorn marooned on the concrete and asphalt, no place to burrow. April's orphans. Once, when he was little in Holidaysburg, he had gone along with his toy wheelbarrow, carefully lifting them up with a borrowed kitchen fork, until the burrow was full, then dumped them into Mr. Snavely's compost pile. And sure as the worms followed the rain, the kids followed the worms. West End, East End, they had poured from their houses into the cool, damp sidewalks, and if they gave the worms away any notice, it was only when they squashed one underfoot. And so as Maniac moved through the East End, he felt the presence of not one, but two populations, both occupying the same territory, yet each unmindful of the other, one yelping and playing and chasing and laughing, the other lost and silent and dying by the millions. Yo, fish belly! Maniac snapped too. He glanced at a street sign. He was four blocks from Hector, deep in the east. Mars Bar came dip, dip jiving toward him, taller than before, bigger, but still scowling. Hey, fish, thought you, w- you was gone. Maniac turned to face him fully. Mars Bar did not stop until he was inside Maniac's phone booth of space, inches from his face. They locked eyes levelly. Maniac thinking, I must be growing too, he said. I'm back. The scowl fiercened. Maybe nobody told you. I'm badder than ever. I'm getting badder every day. I'm almost afraid to wake up in the morning. He leaned closer. Cause how bad I might, I might have got overnight. Maniac smiled, nodded. Yeah, you're bad, Mars. He gave a sniff. The smile, the smile went a little smirky. And I'm getting bad myself. I think I must be half black. Mars' eyes bulged. He backed off. The scowl collapsed and he howled with laughter. His buddies, who were hanging back, stared numbly. As Mars unwound from his laughing fit, he studied Maniac up and down, aware, too, that Maniac was studying him. When he could speak again, he said, Still them raggedy clothes, huh, fish? He lifted one foot, posed. I seen you looking. Like them kicks? Just got them. Maniac nodded. Nice. They were more than nice. They were beautiful. The best. Yes, the baddest sneaks he had ever seen. Way better than anything Grayson could have afforded. I forgot to tell you something else, too, fish. What's that? I'm fast. I mean, I'm faster. I've been working out. Got my new boss kicks. He sprinted in place, arms and legs, pistoning to a blur. He stopped. He jabbed a finger at Maniac's nose, pressed it, flattening the soft end of it. See? Guess you were right. Now at least you got a black nose. He laughed. They both laughed. Everybody laughed. Then Mars turned slow, scourly again, saying... But she ain't black enough or bad enough to beat Mars, the Mars man. We gonna race, honky donkey. The race was set up on Plum Street, the long level block between Ash and Jackson. By the time they were ready, half the kids in the East End were there, from the tiniest pipsqueaks to the high schoolers. The little kids ran races of their own from curb to curb. The bigger kids shouldered blasters and dug into their jeans for coins to bet with. For the first time since last fall, mothers opened their windows and leaned out from second stories. Traffic was detoured from both ends of the block. No one could find string for the finish, so a second-story mother dropped down a spool of bright pink thread. Another problem was the start. First, they had to find chalk to draw the starting line, and then when they did, nobody could seem to draw it straight. The result, a stack of starting lines creeping up the street till somebody brought out a yardstick and did it right. The next problem came when the starter, Bump Gillum, who was also Mars Bar's best pal, called, Get ready! And someone in the crowd yelled, That ain't what you say! You say, take your mark! Well, everybody jumped into it then. There was shoving and jawing, and almost a fist fight over the proper way to start a race. 
Finally, there was a compromise and Bump called, get ready on your mark, at which some at which point someone else yelled, go Mars, and Bump turned and snarled, shut up. When the starter starts, there's no noise. So naturally, someone else called, smoke Mars, and then came, waste of Mars, and do the hog Mars ma- barman. And they might still be calling to this day, had not a single voice separated itself from the others. Burn him, McGee. It was hands down, laughing and pointing from his perch on the roof of a car. Bump jumped into the letup. Get set, go! And at long last, mossy from their weight at the starting line, they went. Even as the race began, even after it began, Maniac wasn't sure how to run it. Naturally, he wanted to win, or at least do his best. All his instincts told him that. But there were other considerations. Whom he was racing against, and where, and what were the consequences might be if he won. These were heavy considerations, heavy enough to slow him down, until the hysterical crowd and the sight of Mars Bar's sneaker bottoms and the boiling of his own blood ignited his afterburners, and before you could say, Burnham McGee, he was ahead, the pink thread bobbing in his sight. But he never saw his body break the thread. He saw only the face of Mars Bar, straining, gasping, unbelieving, losing. They went crazy. They went wild. They went totally bananas. You see him? He turned around. He ran backwards. He did it backwards. He beat him going backwards. Mars Bar tried. He shoved Bump. You started too fast. I wasn't ready. He shoved the thread holders. You moved up so he could win. I was gaining on him. He shoved Maniac. You bumped me. You got a false start. You cheated. But his protest drowned in the pandemonium. Why did I do it? Was all Maniac could think. He hadn't even realized it till he crossed the line and he regretted it instantly. Wasn't it enough just to win? Did he have to disgrace his opponent as well? Had he done it deliberately to pay back Mars Bar for all his nastiness, to show him up and shut him up for once and for all? His only reconciliation was his only recollection was a feeling of sheer joyful exuberance, himself in celebration, shouting Amen in the Bethany Church, bashing John McNabb's fastballs out of sight dancing the polka with Grayson. Maybe it was that simple. After all, who asks why otters toboggan down mud banks? But that didn't make it less stupid or a rotten thing to do. The hatred in Mars Bar's eyes was no longer for a white kid in the East End. It was for Jeffrey McGee, period. The crowd surged with him as he made his way westward. It wasn't clear whether they were glad or not that he had won, only that they had seen something to set them off. They jostled and jammed and high-fived and jived. For every one who called him White Lightning, two more challenged him to race. Right here, baby, you and me. See who's going to turn his back on who. Maniac kept moving, embarrassed, wishing he could just break out and sprint for the West End, wishing he could duck into the Beals house and be sanctuary there and not fear reprisals on them. And just about then, miraculously, two little hands were worming into his. Two familiar voices squealing, Maniac, Maniac! Hester and Lester. He snatched them up, one in each arm. He was on Sycamore Street. There was the house, the door opening. Amanda, Mrs. Beale, smiling to beat the band. Chapter 39. During the night, March doubled back and grabbed April by the scruff of its neck and flung it another week or two down the road. When Maniac slipped silently from the house at dawn, the only way he'd ever managed to get away, March bounced, pounced back with cold and nasty paws. But Maniac wasn't minding. 
The reunion had been ecstatic and tearful and nonstop happy, and inside he was pure July. He was half a block up Sycamore before he stopped tiptoeing. Minutes later, he crossed Hector. The streets were dry. An occasional scrap of chewed rawhide was all that remained of the worms. Hours later, Russell and Piper spotted him three blocks off. Maniac, you're alive. We thought they got you. We thought they slit your throat. And we thought they strangled you and put your tongue out. We thought they chopped off your head and, and, and boiled you. Yeah, boiled you. And drank your blood. Yeah. And drank your brains. You don't think. You don't drink brains, you moron meatball. Yeah, you do. Brains like meat milkshakes, like Dairy Queen. You can drink them with a straw. You can hear them sloshing if you shake your head hard enough. Listen. Hey, get off my head. Hey, help. They were off running. Maniac couldn't help laughing. In spite of their twisted, twisted ludicrous impressions of EastEnders, the concern and the tears in their eyes had been genuine. They had really missed him. They had really been afraid for him. Two hours Two houses away, he could hear the thump, almost feel it, and Father George McNabb's voice. Lay him down easy, I said, easy, followed by John. This easy enough? Thump, followed by a string of curses from George McNabb that fried the cold morning like an egg. The living room was hazy with dust. At the back end of the living room, they were bringing in the cinder blocks. George and John and a handful of cobras, lugging and grunting them in from the the backyard and dumping them on the floor. Thump, thump. Hey, kid, George McNabb was pointing through the haze. Three months, and he still didn't know his tenant's name. Get your lily hide out here. Start lugging these. Maniac waved. Later. Gotta go. He shut the door and headed up the street. So they really were doing it. He had heard them planning it for weeks, making drawings, buying or stealing cement, trowels, a level, a pillbox, they called it. Once it was done, they'd be ready. Let the revolt begin. Let the rebels, as they called the Eastenders, come. Let them bust through their newly installed bars over the plywood on the windows. Let them bust through the steel door. They'll find themselves staring down through the barrel of a little surprise. They squabbled over what surprise would be. Uzi, AK-47, bazooka. Why? Maniac asked Giant John one day. Why what? Why are you doing all this? To get ready, what else? Well, what do you think's going to happen? What's going to happen? Giant John swatted a squad of roaches from the kitchen table and sat down. What's going to happen is one of these days they're going to revolt. Who says? Who cares who? You think you're going to make an announcement? Maniac tried to picture Amanda and Hester and Lester and Bow Wow storming the barricades. When's all this supposed to happen? John shrugged. You never know. Maybe this summer. He jumped up, grabbed a beer from the fridge, flipped it open. They like to revolt in the summer. Makes Mitchy. They like to overrun the cities. This time we'll be ready. And he told Maniac what he'd often imagine, lying in bed. The black sweeping across Hector, one streaming summer night. Torches, chains, blades, guns, war cries. Marauding, looting, overrunning the West End. Climbing in through smashed windows, doors. Looking for whites, bloodthirsty for whites, like Indians in the old days. Indians on a raid. That's what they are, Giant John nodded thoughtfully. Today's Indians. The cockroaches... The cockroach strolling up his pant leg wasn't the only thing making Maniac feel crawly. He shook off the roach. He moved to the center of the kitchen to surround himself with as much space as possible. But other people, he said, I don't hear them talking about revolts. Nobody else wants to make a pillbox. Giant John tilted the last of the beer into his mouth. Maybe when we do, he grinned, they will. That had been weeks before, and now the pillbox was underway. 
a long, no longer an idea in the backyard, but a reality in the dining room. Now there was no room that Maniac could stand in the middle of and feel clean. Now there was something else in that house, and it smelled worse than garbage and turds. Chapter 40 He ran far that day, away from town, letting the wind wash him. When he returned to the West End, he heard in the distance Miss Pickwell whistling her children to dinner. Though he had heard the whistle many times, he had not answered it since his first day in town. Now he felt, as he had that day, that it was meant for him. This time, of course, there was a difference. He was no stranger. He was Maniac McGee, the kid who had walked barefoot through the dump near their house. The Pickwell kids cheered when he showed up and treated him like a legend in the flesh. Mrs. Pickwell did better. She treated him like a member of the family, as if she would have been surprised if he had not come on the whistle. Nor was Maniac the only visitor for dinner. Mr. Pickwell had brought home a down-and-out shoe salesman in sore need of a sympathetic and good meal. As Maniac ate and talked and laughed his way through dinner, he couldn't help thinking of the Beals, how alike the two families were, friendly, giving, accepting, so easily he could picture the Beals' brown faces around this dinner table and the little Pickwell kids' white bodies in the t- bathtub at 728 Sycamore. Whoever had made of Hector Street a barrier, it was surely not these people. Fortified by his good time at the Pickwells, Maniac returned to the McNabs. After the East End scare, Russell and Piper no longer demanded stunts of him in return for attending school. On the one hand, this was a relief to Maniac, but on the other, it left him with less influence over them. He could always extort a day or two in class from them with a free weekly pizza. Beyond that, he goaded them towards school any way he could. He organized a marbles tournament that could take place only in the schoolyard during recess. He tried reading to them, as he had to Hester and Lester and to Grayson, but they paid as much attention as the, co- as the roaches. He took them to the library, then scrapped that idea after their shenanigans left the librarian blubbering and blue-faced. Then May arrived with its warm weather and blew away what little power he had left. The boys began again to dream of travel. Word appeared in the backyard. Wood appeared in the backyard. They were building a raft. Gonna sail down the river to the ocean, they said. One day, he heard frenzied horn honking and screaming. He turned to see an accident rusty an ancient sorry an ancient rusty gas hog convertible rolling by with russell behind the wheel and piper jumping up and down and shrieking in the back seat by the time maniac caught up they were gone and the car was shuddering against a telephone pole another time he had to run them down and haul them back to dorsey's grocery where he made them empty their bulging pockets of the 50 bubble gums they had stolen it was a maddening chaotic time for maniac Running in the mornings and reading in the afternoons gave him just enough stability to endure the zany nights at the McNabs. When he asked himself why he didn't just drop it, drop them, the answer was never clear. It wasn't so much that he wanted to stay as he couldn't go. In some vague way, to abandon the McNab boys would be to abandon something in himself. He couldn't shake the suspicion that deep inside Russell and Piper McNab, in the prayer-dark seed of their kidhoods, they were identical to Hester and Lester Beale. But they were spoiling, rotting from the outside in like a pair of peaches in the sun. Soon, unless he, unless somebody did something, the rot would reach the pit. And yet he held back. Oh, he prodded and persuaded and inspired and bribed the boys to do right, but he never forced them, never commanded, never shouted. Because to do so would be parental, and he was not yet ready for that. 
How could he act as a father to these boys when he himself ached to be somebody's son? But then, one day, the boys went too far. He found them playing with the old glove Grayson had given him for Christmas. As if that weren't bad enough, they were using it as a football, punting it back and forth. Maniac exploded. He popped off for a good ten minutes, got all it all out. This was the last straw, he told them. From now on, it was going to be different. No more Mr. Nice Guy. When I say jump, you say how high. Got it? They got it. For the first time in their lives, the boys were speechless. Speechless as they did their homework that night. Speechless as they went to bed at nine o'clock. Speechless as they went off to school the next morning. The peace lasted three days. Shock accounted for the first day. The second and third days were a new game called obedience or being good. When the game lost its appeal, Maniac lost his power. He told them to sit. They stood. He told them to stand. They sat. Instead of going to school, they worked on their raft. Instead of doing homework, they played war in the pillbox. They brought their plastic weapons down from the hole and stationed themselves in the two small gunnery slots in the cinder block wall and blasted away at anyone moving through the house, not to mention imaginary rebels streaming through the doors and over the windowsills. Stop! Maniac finally yelled and snatched the two red gun barrels protruding from the shots. In a moment, two more barrels appeared. Stop! he commanded. Ain't shooting you! Russell whined, we're shooting them rebels. Bam, bam, pow, got one, pow, bam, got another, bam, bam. I said, stop. Maniac grabbed the guns, threw them on the floor, and stomped on them. He didn't stop until they were plastic splinters. The only sound that was that of the turtle scratching somewhere in the room. The gunnery slots framed the boys' dumbstruck faces. Russell was the first to speak. Get out of my house. Yeah, sneered Piper. Out of here. Maniac went upstairs, got his satchel, and was gone. That night and the next night, he slept at the park. The following day, he sat reading in the library. In came the McNabb boys. They rushed to him. Hey, Maniac, blurted Piper. We've been looking all over for you. You gotta come to my birthday party. I'm having a birthday tomorrow. What do you say, huh? You coming, huh? Maniac couldn't believe it. The ugly feelings of the other day showed nowhere on their excited faces. Come on, maniac, you gotta. And just like that, as he stared at them, the idea came. An idea as zany as they were. The words seemed to lift right off their faces, like sunburnt skin peeling. Well, okay, he said, on one condition. What's that? If I can bring somebody with me. Sure, bring everybody. We're gonna party. The librarian edged closer to the phone.